Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Many fintech companies in China were doing things that banks do, but, but they weren't regulated like the banks. So you had companies like Ant Financial were lending to people, but weren't held to lending standards like a bank was, and that has changed. Hey everyone, and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays. I'm Sumi Roy with ETF.com, and I'm joined by my lovely colleague, Heather Bell, who is Managing Editor at ETF.com. How's it going, Heather? Pretty good. Glad to be here chatting with you, Sumit. Absolutely. Heather, we have a fantastic guest joining us today. Brendan Ahern is the Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares, where he's in charge of the firm's research and education. I had the pleasure of speaking with Brendan not too long ago for a webinar we hosted on ETF.com, so I'm looking forward to doing it again today. Brendan, welcome to the show. Many thanks, Sumit, and uh, many thanks, Heather. Looking forward to uh, the opportunity to connect, as always. I'm really excited to have you here, Brendan, because everyone is always interested to hear about China. And this is a topic you're an expert on. I want to start at the top. What is the investment case for China today? And what sectors and industries within the country do you think are most attractive? Well, I think we always would say, you know, there's great opportunities in, in the world's second largest uh, economy. And, you know, I think it's important that investors recognize that, that you have exposure to China implicitly through great U.S. multinational corporations uh, that are doing great business in China. That could be companies, uh, you know, obviously geared to China's uh, growing urban middle class like Apple and Nike. But it's also industrial companies like Boeing and ExxonMobil. At the same time, China is, is fairly well underrepresented within broad equity benchmarks, just uh, less than 5% of the all-country world index. Uh, yes, it's about a third of MSCI emerging markets, but relatively small when you compare it to the size of, say, the U.S. is almost, you know, more than 60% of all country world. So I think for us at Crane Shares, we've been very focused on the new China thematics, the growth areas within China's growing economy, and at the same time, providing access into the world's second largest stock market, second largest a bond market. But probably more importantly, Sumit, is the research that we try to provide, or we do provide, um, hope people read, or which is trying to just provide a balanced, data-driven perspective on what's happening in uh, the world's second largest uh, economy, and certainly a very important trade partner, very important company, uh, country for many U.S. corporations. Absolutely, Brendan. I get your updates every day in my inbox, so I would urge listeners to check that out. Brendan, a lot of people, they were bullish on China for a long time, right? The BRICS thing between the early 2000s and even the mid 2010s, there was this narrative that China is the second largest economy and it's growing really fast, just 7-8% growth. But more recently, people have been looking at the headlines and they're seeing things like 
China's zero COVID policy and the real estate crisis. So they're kind of concerned that China's economy has hit a bump in the road. How would you address those concerns? I think big picture, since the global financial crisis back in, uh, uh, which bottomed out in, in March of 2009, you've had this incredible equity bull market in the United States so that, you know, the S&P 500 from the GFC low is up over, well over 600%. And uh, you then look at, uh, say, MSCI Emerging Markets is up less than 200% or MSCI China up, you know, 150% over the same time period. And I think most investors would say, well, you know, those markets are out of favor. And if we put ourselves in, in, in the shoes of a financial advisor or an investment committee or the trustee of a pension plan, the more you've diversified, the worse you've done in terms of your U.S. versus your non-U.S. equity exposure. And I think over time, you start to see those non-U.S. equity positions get whittled down uh, where they become fairly small. And, and I, think, I think the flaw in that rationale or that thinking that EM in China has been out of favor over the last, call it, 13 years is that we'd all agree that we've been in a more growth-geared bull market. And that's true in the United States, but it's also true globally. And the problem is if we looked at a lot of these non-US benchmarks from a sector perspective, they were very much value benchmarks from a sector perspective. So MSCI Emerging Markets, MSCI China 13 years ago was all financials, energy, industrials, materials, and real estate. And so then you had these growth, growth sectors or subsectors outperforming and you had really de minimis exposure. So you know, the way to prove that would be EM tech sector actually outperformed the S&P 500 over the last 13 years. The MSCI China tech sector uh, did almost 3x the S&P 500. So I think big picture, Sumit, you know, you have this view somewhat, not, it's not incorrect. It's just more, you, you have to kind of peel back the onion to kind of figure out figure out the culprit of why has EM, why has China underperformed so dramatically? And then I think, you know, some of the points you make more, you know, about some of the concerns that we read about in, in say the U.S. press have only kind of contributed to that. You know, if it's zero COVID or issues, potential issues like, you know, Evergrande or housing in China, it just kind of reinforces a little bit of that belief, but I think I think there's a lot more to it, and I'm you know, certainly happy to talk about some of the, some of these specific issues that have been weighing on, say, sentiment more recently. Brendan, I was curious. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF was KWeb was on fire, and then China cracked down on the internet industry, and that fund really took a hit. So I was wondering what was behind that crackdown. And what's the way forward for that industry in China? Yeah, yeah, you know, um, you know, because KWeb, which really is the transmission vehicle for domestic consumption as it occurs online in China, just over twenty five percent of all retail sales happens online. And you know, certainly in twenty twenty one, first we actually had this U.S. hedge fund Archegos implode and. You know, five of their 10 holdings were U.S. listed Chinese ADRs that sold by their by its prime brokerage at you know very significant discount. And then we had the on-scent, Heather, to your point around internet regulation. And I think 
elements of what happened with internet regulation is not that different from what's happened in Europe with their GDPR, which is user data and user protection laws, where, you know, I think many, you know, if you haven't been to Europe recently, I was just there recently for work. And, you know, I went to check to see how uh, my New York giants were doing and the New York Daily News doesn't work in, in Europe. And it's not because, you know, the European Union has a firewall. It's just the owner of, of the New York Daily News is unwilling to pay f- for the data requirements on this uh, general general data protection rights. So some of what's happened in China is not that different from what's happened in Europe, could be coming here. But then there were anti-monopoly and anti-competitive measures. So these are you know, the companies within KWeb don't like each other. Historically, they've not played very nice in the sandbox with one another. And a lot of the ways they tried to hurt one another these anti-competitive measures uh, have gone away. Certainly, fintech was another issue. You know, many fintech companies in China were doing things that banks do, but but they weren't regulated like the banks. So you had companies like Ant Financial were lending to people, but weren't held to lending standards like a bank was. And that has changed. Some element, I think, Heather, is that regulation is not necessarily a bad thing. But when the implementation of this regulation, it wasn't done in a very transparent fashion. It wasn't very well communicated. And that uncertainty is something markets always hate. Markets hate uncertainty. And so I think it really weighed on investors not knowing the end game, not knowing, you know, is this company, is it done? Is it not done? And it, it really, really weighed on sediment across 2021 into 2022, something that, you know, while we think the worst is well behind us, there's, you know, lingering concerns. So two-part question, Brendan, and you kind of touched on it with your last statement. Do you see value in KWeb now? Because I'm looking at the chart and it's down something like 80% from high to low. That's kind of reminiscent of what happened to the NASDAQ during the dot-com bubble bursting, which happened in the early 2000s. That's one, is there value in KWeb? And two, how does KWeb compare to your other China tech-focused ETFs? One of the things that, you know, candidly, you know, I've, I've learned the hard way as an investor in KWeb over the last year and a half that I've always been very focused on the fundamentals, particularly listening to the earnings calls of the companies. And what I failed to recognize, you know, I paid for in dollars in my own personal account and, you know, buying KWeb for over the last year was these factors that have weighed on, on the sector are really non-fundamental. And so so you, when you have investors who are worried about China's internet regulation or U.S. regulation, U.S.-China political relations, or you know what's happened to Russia because of Ukraine, these are really factors that you know have led many investors to the sidelines. And you know we think there's tremendous value in the companies. What we really need are positive catalysts. We need some of these issues like, you know, we firmly believe that, you know, that the China Internet regulation is over. You know, on on U.S. regulation of Chinese ADRs, we think, you know, these audit reviews that are taking place uh, as we speak, the PCOB is in Hong Kong, you know, doing audit reviews. That can remove a significant overhang. You know, the potential People's Congress and 
in mid-October and the potential for zero COVID policies to be relaxed further or the potential approval of an mRNA vaccine in China. You know, these are all positive catalysts, you know, singles day, Alibaba's big salesman. So, so there are all these positives out there. We just, we just need investors to be a little bit more focused on them. And I think that's something that's, that's true for other opportunities that we really believe in. If it's, you know, the need for more healthcare in China, the need for clean technology, you know, the pollution solutions, uh, like we hold in K-Green, you know, which is solar, wind, and EV, or, you know, certainly the um, electric vehicle phenomenon is is not just a, a China phenomenon, uh, it's a global phenomenon, and, you know, cars is is global in nature, but certainly uh, includes some great, great Chinese companies like the, you know, global EV battery maker, CATL, listed in Shenzhen. So in some ways, you know, China... Yeah, their economic policy is very transparent, and um, you know we we try to align ourselves with these top-down driven policies, and that's really led to Cure K Green Cars, you know K Web uh, for for just that reason. Definitely liked what you said about positive catalysts, Brendan. We're all hoping for positive catalysts for markets around the world, even here in the U.S. One thing you mentioned though is that whole auditing saga that's going on between the U.S. and China. A lot of investors had concerns about that. It sounds like you think those issues will be resolved, but in case they aren't, what's the worst case scenario? If certain Chinese companies get delisted, how will that affect ETF? Yeah, yeah, certainly it's a hope. And and we've always felt to meet that, you know, it's, it's a resolvable issue that, you know, the PCOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board was started in, in 2003 as part of Sarbanes-Oxley following the Enron and WorldCom scandals. So it's kind of the auditors of auditors and that's been applied to all ADRs. And then the PCOB does great work and, you know, work to sign up every country that has an ADR listed in the U.S. to adhere to this standard. And, you know, France, Belgium and China were up until a few years ago, only three countries that hadn't agreed. And today it's solely China. So that led to the passage of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, uh, which said that if these China doesn't allow these audit reviews. The the U.S. listed China ADRs would be delisted in 2024. So certainly the U.S. is carrying a big stick. The one thing that I don't think gets a lot of attention is um, the owners of those U.S. China ADRs are U.S. saver. You know, they didn't do anything wrong by buying these companies, which were all allowed to list here in the United States, knowing they couldn't adhere to this audit review standard. And at the same time, the companies themselves didn't do anything wrong. You know, they were allowed to list here. And so we're big believers that, you know, the Chinese, China should allow this audit review to happen. We've always felt policy error and, you know, that could come from either side is is a risk. So we've we've moved to convert a lot of it, the exposure within KWeb to the home Hong Kong share class of U.S.-China ADRs, and in light of a definitive resolution, we'll uh, continue to make that movement as a fiduciary to, to protect our investors' assets. You know, we're, we're not going to stand idle with the threat of a delisting. You know, we're going to protect our shareholders, and I think some element of our inflows in KWeb, or from speaking to investors, you know, they're, they're almost hiring us 
to keep abreast of this situation and, and to make that conversion for them. You know, not everyone wants to hold a Hong Kong listed stock, but but we can do that for you. And do those Hong Kong listed securities move similarly to their U.S. counterparts? They do. They do. So there's fungibility between the share classes that you know, we can you can convert your ADR to the Hong Kong share class. So the, the two stocks, you know, on any given day, you know, between the Hong Kong close and the U.S. close, you're gonna have a, a disparity. But it's not a risk-free arbitrage. But there there is an arbitrage opportunity where if, if one share class really moves out of whack with the other, you know, investors can come in and you know basically convert one share class for the other. And that, that'll help kind of reset the two share classes back to one another. Brendan, I just wrote an article about how, I believe it was the Asian Development Bank released a report saying that for the first time in 30 years, China's GDP growth would trail that of the other emerging markets in Asia. And I was wondering, does that mean that the other Asian emerging markets are possibly better investment prospects for like the next year or two than say China? Well, you know, certainly I think there's a world of opportunities outside of the United States. Um, you know, and it's, it's not an, you know, it's not a black and white situation where, um, you know, just because you, you like opportunities, that doesn't mean you can't not like the U.S. and vice versa. So I think I think there are opportunities. You know, a number of, of countries in Southeast Asia are very interesting. Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines. But I think, you know, from a GDP or and or a market capitalization or just a numerical count of stocks within within, say, MSCI emerging markets, yeah, you know, there's such a strong argument that China is is worthy of being an asset class, no, no different than say Asia X Japan. And I just think, you know, you know, China's it's it's almost 20% of, of global GDP. It's third of MSCI emerging markets. It's numerically, you know, more than 700 of the 1400 stocks are Chinese companies. So I think, I think, yeah, there's, there's a wealth of opportunity. You know, I do think there's, you know, China is inexpensive from a valuation perspective and that that's true for other countries. You know, it's, it's not true for some, you know, India and the U S are, are high from a relative valuation perspective. So I think, I think, I think there's opportunities, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a zero sum game. I think there's, you know, there's strong arguments for global diversification. Absolutely. I was also noting that your firm offers things like carbon credit ETFs, an electric vehicle fund, and a China clean tech fund. How important are environmental considerations when looking at China's, you know, overall market? You know, certainly, you know, back in July of 2017, I um, was in Beijing for work. And I, after doing meetings all day, I <clears throat> wanted to stretch my legs, but I also want to see this luxury uh, high-end mall near near uh, the JW Marriott and uh, the Chaoyang district of Beijing. And in walking to the mall, I first passed a uh, an Apple, Apple store. And then, then I passed the Tesla showroom and at the time, Tesla was a very controversial company, you know, that, that its success was far from preordained. And, you know, at the same time, locally in China, the pollution situation in 
particularly in, in the Northeast, you know, Beijing is, you know, you know, proverbially downwind of, of the China steel industry where pollution had gotten to a, almost, you know, really a breaking point. The, the government was making a pivot to address environmental concerns of the pop, you know, the local population by pushing through their version of kind of cash for clunkers, uh, trying to get older, higher emission vehicles off the road, but also um, putting through subsidies for electric vehicles, both domestic companies, you know, companies like, you know, Neo and Li Auto and Xpeng, uh, uh, BYD, but also, you know, foreign companies like Tesla. And, you know, obviously today Tesla, you know, has a factory in Shanghai. And that that led to, you know, our realization of listing cars and, um, you know, the first EV ETF globally, uh, is my understanding. Um, you know, but that, that, that was a global phenomenon that we felt like, you know, just as Tesla could do well in China, it could do well in the United States. And just as, you know, we're seeing Neo today, which has done great in China, is also, you know, building its brand in, in Europe in a big way. And, you know, we felt like it, there, it, it was really a global event. You know, it's our belief that, you know, investors are underallocated to two of the biggest themes for the next several decades, which will be both China and climate. And, you know, the carbon credit allowance suite is really helps investors. And then again, it goes back to, you know, the great research we do around it. You know, Luke Oliver and our team focused on carbon credit allowances is, you know, helping investors understand this new asset class. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a play a bigger part here in the United States and no different than we're trying to do on the China side of trying to provide that balanced data driven perspective on what's happening there. Well, fantastic. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Brendan, you gave us a lot to chew on and think about. Really appreciate your insights and thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Great to connect, Heather. And thank you again, Sumit. Absolutely. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. To find all episodes of Exchange Traded Fridays, visit ETF.com or look for it on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll catch you all next week. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.